0: My name's Robin Harford. Welcome to another episode of the Eat Weeds podcast. Previous shows are archived at eatweeds.co.uk forward slash podcast. Today I'm very excited to be with Anne Stobart. So the reason I brought Anne on is to talk about medicinal trees because, well, let's just have a riff, shall we? (laughs) How did... Well, Anne Stobart, you are a medical herbalist. Tell me your story, how did, you, how did plants and trees all come into your life that you ended up dedicating your life to them?
1: So, where did it begin? It might have begun when somebody bought me a herbal for my 21st birthday but I think it was earlier than that, I think it was my parents, my wonderful parents used to, I lived in London and we used to go out blackberry picking uh, in Hadley Woods, north of London. And and we started off near Kew Gardens, visiting there. So there's lots of, and my grandfather, who was in a council estate in Loughborough, used to grow runner beans in his front garden. So there's lots of bits and pieces, but nothing I can really put my finger on. In fact, I did most of my adult life thinking that plants were something that I could do as a hobby, as an interest, and growing vegetables on the allotment house plants and so on. And then I discovered a distance learning course about herbal medicine. And When was this? This would have been back in the 1990s. I was in my mid-life 40s, I think, 30s, 40s. And I kind of raced through this Treat Yourself programme and uh, really enjoyed it. And at the end of it, discovered that, that you could professionally train to be a medical herbalist. And that's when everything clicked for me and I decided that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Of course, I had a career in adult and further education at the time, so things were going to change quite a lot.
0: <laughs> so the tree side, I mean, as a forager, people ask me this, they go, in, in the northern hemisphere as a forager, I am continually ten, tend to look down at the ground the whole time and it was only when i went to the southern hemisphere that i realized that i had to start looking up because that was where the food and the medicine is and i have a friend in hanoi who hangs out with the red Dao, who's a hill <laughs> tribe in in those parts and they do amazing plant medicine tree medicines so trees have come on on the radar medicinally but you know, I mean, there's the there's the usual suspects like willow and hawthorn, etc., that most most foragey people know. But there's way more than that, isn't there? I mean, you've written an entire book on medicinal trees. So, why medicinal trees as opposed to, I suppose, what people call herbs?
1: <laughs> so, yes, indeed. I mean, I've always loved trees. Because they give you shade and I don't do very well on the beach in the sunshine. But it it, it didn't really occur to me to, to pursue this until I was training as a, a medical herbalist. And part of the training involves the equivalent of a year in clinic. And in the dispensaries where you've got lots of tinctures on the shelves, I would notice, and, and later when I qualified and started buying my own tinctures, that things like Hawthorne, hawthorn Berry Tincture, were coming from Eastern Europe or yeah. other countries. And I couldn't make sense of that because we've got masses of hawthorn in the UK. It's part of every hedge, really. And uh, so I started then thinking about, because I wanted to grow as much as I could of my own herbal uh, medicines for my practice. And I started thinking about sourcing trees. And that's when I started thinking more seriously about um, actually being able to grow cultivate trees um, because I was interested in some North American tinctures it wouldn't necessarily have worked to go out foraging um, and as a treat I booked myself into a, uh, a stint in, in North America uh, a placement with the United Plant Savers oh, right. and found out a lot about American trees and and that really enabled me to confidently start thinking about where could i plant these trees and grow them
0: so i'm always intrigued i, I mean i my as with any of this plant journey it you know the worldview doesn't remain static certainly not in my situation so in the early days of of teaching foraging i always said no you know you've got to have it in the wild because when it's in the wild it's got to struggle and when it struggles that makes it resilient but it also pushes the medicine out into it whereas when we take it from the wild and we try and cultivate it then we make it all soft and floppy and (laughs) the medicine is reduced so what would you say to that is that a load of rubbish
1: (laughs) no i think i think there is truth in that i think that plants in the wild do have to produce more of those active ingredients to help protect them. And of course, most of the useful constituents in plants are to do with protecting or repairing the plants, protecting them from being eaten and and protecting lesions from getting infected and so on. So absolutely, I think there is truth in that. But I would also say that many plants in the wild are becoming harder to find that they're um, possibly in some areas being over harvested uh, and so on. And we have to think seriously about how we access those supplies. And so cultivation in a sustainable way, which for trees is fantastically possible, they're, they're, they're so productive, um, has to be a, a way forward. And what we need now is to know more about how best to cultivate should we be cultivating as if those plants were in the wild, or are there other ways to, to, um, to, to grow these plants and still get the goodness from them?
0: Which I suppose you're, you're a big permaculturalist. So, yeah, forest garden, etc. And those approaches to horticulture, if that's the right word... Um, mimic naturally the state of wildness so
1: absolutely that's
0: going to be bent more beneficial than than monocultural in
1: bark or something yeah certainly yeah permaculture is well known for the forest garden
0: yeah okay so before we go because some people who listen to this show then they're going what what's permaculture (laughs) can you give a quick synopsis of it
1: uh, yes. <laughs>
0: yeah, we've got wasps flying just around here. so momentarily right.
1: yeah. panic. Okay, so um, so permaculture is really about a design system, a design system based on observing nature and what, what works, uh, a design system that um, offers opportunities for sustainable growing, but actually can be applied more widely, not just to gardens and growing projects, but to... Uh, lifestyles and and all sorts of other things and permaculture is based on three ethical principles one is caring for people two is caring for the planet and three is um, sharing the the benefits and which are very much principles that I would like to adhere to but is also based on um, design ideas which have been observed around the world to do with Um, preserving and sustaining um, biodiversity and resources. So thinking about energy use in designing a garden or a growing project, thinking about using diverse and perennial uh, species that can be productive in the long term with less management those sorts of ideas are, are really important in permaculture. So it's nothing to do with permafrost, yeah, <laughs> but more to do with, as you say, horticulture, sustainable horticulture, but in a much wider sense that can be applied to lots of different situations.
0: So we're sitting in... I'm not going to say where, specifically, um, but we're sitting in a in a in a forest garden come nature reserve and dog walking place (laughs) as you can tell by that whistle sound Um, do you have a, a fantasy of like maybe these kinds of gardens being all around Britain and councils taking attention that when they plant trees they plant medicine or food trees rather than ornamental I mean that's Part of that's my, my uh, <laughs> fantasy, I have to say.
1: I would, love to, I would love to see that, that people become more aware and more confident about including trees and shrubs with medicinal potential in their plantings. And it's somewhat ironic that probably most people, if they have a garden or a, some sort of growing project, probably already have some of these plants growing because there are lots of ornamental trees and shrubs that offer medicinal benefits I think the key is probably lies in education, about learning about how these plants work and how to use them safely and in beneficial ways. So there's a big educational job out there. But there are already lots and lots of community growing projects which are doing this. So perhaps that's a good starting point as well, is to extend what they offer to medicinal trees and shrubs.
0: How would young people who've got an interest in trees and plants and shrubs find out? And how would adults find out?
1: So the Permaculture Association run training courses and events all around the permaculture design side of things. And they're certainly very keen to provide more information for children as well. And other groups like the Herb Society offer resources for schools to use. And of course there's there's a lot of people now active in the forest school movement. But to find out more specific information about the medicinal side it's harder I think at the moment and that's one of the reasons why I got into writing the book the medicinal forest garden handbook which has been published for a couple of years now but also developing short online courses and the latest one we've just put online which is the medicinal trees and their healing properties so those
0: just to, to let people who are listening know in the show notes of this podcast there's a link i mean you set up the medicinal
1: the medicinal forest garden trust so the medicinal forest garden trust is all about encouraging sustainable cultivation and harvest using trees and shrubs so in a sense it's about as you said earlier looking up at the medicines that are there's a bonanza of medicines around us indeed we're just sitting underneath an ash tree which used to be used in the old days for treating fever, the bark particularly. And sadly, lots of problems with ash now, but um, it's quite medicinal in its own right. So the medicinal forest... Is that in
0: the in the modern pharmacopoeia, is it, or is that it's pre-modern? Not, it's
1: not really... It's a pre-modern. It's not really used nowadays. OK. But, um, but like many barks, it has anti-inflammatory uh, bark, this tree. Uh, in In... Um, the 1700s, it would have been used as an alternative to chinchona, which was brought in from South America, or Jesuits' bark um, to treat fevers. It
0: wasn't the malaria plant, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: chinchona, yes. Really, yeah. ash
0: was used before chinchona? Well, it was
1: used as uh, probably as an alternative. Um, but
0: and he, not as strong, which is what is that why it died out, or did we just have this grass greener <laughs> the exotics are always i think better?
1: there's i think there's a i think there's something that that people do have a bit of a thing for um imported uh, some tropical remedies or um, things that are maybe a bit more exotic and and we can look closer to home uh, personally, I'm not against introduced trees i have uh, very much in favour of introducing. Those um, ornamentals and such like trees and shrubs, but um, we do need to be more aware of the possibilities of what we already have around us.
0: Absolutely, I'm I'm completely with you. I mean, I love I love kind of the introduced plants that come over here, but I'm also very aware that, like you say, right under our feet, we have these ancient trees and shrubs that Mm -hmm. we've forgotten about, and we do need to learn their stories again and their their place in our culture. And our place in their culture as well, because it's a two-way street, isn't it?
1: Yes, I think the the Medicinal Forest Garden Trust, one of the things that I'm hoping will be able to develop is more opportunities for learning about the, the potential healing benefits of these trees and shrubs. Obviously, recently we've had problems with lockdown, and so courses in person have been more difficult. But so I've been trying to develop online through blog posts and and the like just more and more information. Slowly we'll build up a whole lot of detail. There is lots of information around the sorts of things that you do about foraging and and edible trees. There's lots of overlap into the medicinal benefits.
0: Very much. Hmm. Uh, It's a massive Zen diagram, Venn diagram. That could be a Zen diagram. (laughs) Um, and that's, I think that's because I wrote this book, edible and medicinal wild plants of Britain and Ireland, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, because it, I think with my own journey, when I was exploring plants, yeah, I was focused on the foodie side. I knew there was the medicine, but it was like, no, no, I'm really interested. I've got a, you know, I've got a tummy and I like filling it. (laughs) And, but over the years, it's like, I can't actually separate out now because I don't know many sure. forageables that actually haven't had a medicinal use at some point. I mean, I'm sure there are, but then, I mean, it springs to mind totally. And I think this this kind of extractive way of looking at a plant as, oh, it's food or, oh, it's medicine, it's like, well, no, that there's, there's, mm. a, there's a dance between those polarities that we need to...
1: There's lots of overlap, back. and... I would like to see more information available to people about how these plants actually work. So for example, all the antioxidants in blue and purple fruits, which antioxidant effects are crucial really. As we age, we have more and more inflammation and such like in our body, antioxidants actually help reduce that inflammation. So understanding the principles of why these things work is quite crucial and there are plenty of other examples people sometimes ask me for an alternative to aspirin and I have to explain that although willow is anti-inflammatory it doesn't have the same effects as aspirin they can't be directly substituted for each other and understanding better how willow does have anti-inflammatory actions helps us to appreciate that the big differences between the plants and perhaps synthetic medicines
0: so how many, I mean you've written the book and I haven't, looked, I haven't actually counted how many trees and shrubs you've included. How many medicinal trees and shrubs are we talking about in the UK or Britain? Uh, <laughs>
1: that's a very difficult question to answer. It depends whether you, introduce, whether you include the native
0: Okay um, okay let's let for the purists out there because we know there's a lot of them <laughs> uh, who don't like the in, the the incomers how many native so called
1: okay well if you're just looking at trees then there's a problem because what are there maybe 40 native trees um which well you can safely say are, are native uh to the UK and of those maybe half of them are useful in a medicinal sense okay so you'd be quite limited really if you just went for the trees um obviously if you bring in shrubs then you can extend a lot more when when i i'm retired from practice now but when i was practicing i had maybe over 120 tinctures on the shelf plus dried herbs and and other things so that to make that range of possibilities in the dispensary I couldn't really rely on native plants. And I would have had in my dispensary plants like ginkgo, um, prickly ash, so ginkgo is an Asian plant. Prickly ash comes from North America and and lots of other plants that we wouldn't normally see in the UK unless they're planted as ornamentals. So so I would say, you can do quite a lot with the native range of Materia Medica, but you can extend a lot more. Yeah. And there are particular limitations. For example, there are very few plants in the European Materia Medica, the North European Materia Medica, that are warming or heating in the same way that, for example, the spices that come from the yeah. tropics uh, offer ginger, turmeric, and all of those yeah, wonderful yeah, yeah, plants. Yeah, yeah. So how do you replace them? Well, you could try horseradish, but not everybody gets on with horseradish.
0: So you talked just before we started turning the recorder on about North American trees and shrubs and, and bringing some of those over. Are there any of maybe like the Chinese trees and shrubs or the Ayurvedic trees and shrubs that that you've kind of included?
1: Yes, yeah. Um, The Ayurvedic less so because they tend to be not hardy. Um, So you you need a greenhouse or a very sheltered environment. Right. Um, Lots of Southern European plants are doing better in this country. So, for example, things like myrtle and fig and, and so on. Asian Chinese plants are fantastic. Many of them will do really well. And, for example, magnolia. The problem is Fantastic. getting a magnolia that's not just an ornamental, trying to get a, a species that's not been bred or a variety that's not been bred for its, just for its flowers. Other Asian plants like Forsythia, uh, dogwoods, all of those have interesting medicinal effects. And then there's North American plants. There's a wonderful organisation in North America called United Plant Savers, that have been trying to bring back botanical sanctuaries and yeah. and provide a more understanding of why the, the North American plants are so important. Because, of course, in North America, there are many, many more species of trees. There are lots of different kinds of nuts, for example, in North America. And one of the ones that I was talking about earlier, which is quite exciting, is the Virginian witch hazel, which is a, a North American shrub that grows under oak and has really really good astringent action it's very much a first aid remedy mm. plant and it's one of the ones that we started growing in our medicinal tree project at Holtwood and growing it for lots of leafy matter and twigs to distill to produce a wonderful anti-inflammatory distilled water
0: And that's a hydrosol
1: A hydrosol usually in my understanding is A distillate which also retains some of the essential oils may be dispersed throughout and usually has quite good keeping qualities as a result. Interestingly, witch hazel doesn't really have a lot of essential oil in it and so normally distilled witch hazel is preserved with a bit of added alcohol, between 14 to 15% added alcohol.
0: Is it possible to preserve it without alcohol? Like with vinegar or something? Or glycerin? Um,
1: there are other preservatives that can be added, but they're mostly synthetic.
0: Oh, but it's an external as well, though, isn't it? It's
1: used externally. Yeah, yes, yeah. 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 No,
0: okay. yeah. no, I was just because you know a lot of a lot of people in, in Britain are Muslims, so they a lot of um believe sure. believe that don't drink. Um, there's alcoholics who can't drink, so I'm quite conscious of is it possible to make you know the the old ways of making medicines without alcohol. Quite yes. quite helpful yes. to a large number of people. So
1: glycerites and vinegar-based syrups, all of those are, are possible. The thing about alcohol is that it has a good extraction right. property when you have a, a mixture of up to about 40% alcohol and water. But you can get good extraction, um, sometimes a bit weaker, with glycerides and with vinegars particularly. Or just go for dried herbs which can be used as teas
0: Oh yeah I, I, it's, it's interesting i remember i had a friend a long time ago i don't i don't know where she's gone to now and she was very much with tamil medicine in southern india and she came back with these pills basically mm-hmm. which were nothing more than just powdered mm. plants rolled up with mm. i don't know what <laughs> they were they were very tasty um and i was i was looking at that old way because I never really I've never really seen it used over here as a way of making medicines we hear about taking powders you can powder your plants but is there a tradition of making just literally powdering up bark or something and mixing it up with fruit matter or some
1: so one of the things that I've taught people to do and I I include some information in the book um, is how to Powder bark and use honey to make okay. um, uh, cap, sort of tablets. You yeah. can also, in a modern sense, you can get vegan capsules and use a hand filling machine to fill with powdered bark. Powdered bark, p- bark is quite bitter. <laughs> yeah. So, and the bitterness is probably part of the taste. So, you don't always have quite the effects that you originally anticipated. Most of the experience, I think, in, in the UK has been with teas. Powdering, drying and powdering things is, is a really good way to go because you can extend the life of those things. They'll last for at least a couple of years, if not longer. And then you can put them into those sort of vehicles, either a capsule or a, a syrup, which is easier to take. And of course, syrups would have been used in the old days because that's a good preservative sugar.
0: Personally, I've always had a bit of a thing with capsules I and mean, I do use them, but I just and and I think it's what you hit on just then when you said oh they're quite bitter. But isn't that part of the medicine, I mean feeling mm-hmm. experiencing that is
1: It is, but there's bitter and bitter. Some people <laughs> like bitter and for other people it will put them off completely. Yeah, that's... I did some research into name, really. 17th century domestic medicine and I looked at letters and accounts of households and how they did self-help, what they brought in from the apothecary and so yeah. on. And one of the complaints of one of the main characters was that she really did not like taking the Jesuit's bath because it was so bitter. Mm. And the physicians at the time were looking for ways to encourage their subjects, if you like, their patients. And physic, I think, has always been regarded as something that's bitter, and it was deliberately bitter because it stimulated the body's functions to help eliminate, whether through the gut or in other ways.
0: So what about climate change? Is that affecting the range of trees and shrubs that we might grow moving forwards for the next 10-20 years if we're planning obviously planning a medicinal tree garden or forest garden yeah, it takes quite a while and as we've seen specifically in this summer there's a lot of dead trees around as a result
1: yeah Yeah. I think coming at it from two ways climate change is going to affect where herbal supplies come from and and Herb's a big business worldwide and as um, more habitats get changed for agricultural purposes or other reasons and as climate events become more and more problematic, access to those supplies is going to become more and more difficult. So that kind of increases the need to look at cultivating our own supplies. But there's swings and roundabouts, the sort of warming of the climate means that trees and shrubs are likely to be more productive but some particularly maybe the conifers are likely to be undermined because they tend to prefer colder climates we might be able to include more southern european type plants some of the particularly the aromatic plants Mm. and and i mentioned before things like myrtle and fig and uh, and the like which provide us with not just fruits and berries, but also leaves that we can use in teas. So I think it's a kind of very much a swings and roundabouts thing that we can benefit by anticipating the plants that are more likely to do well in in a warmer climate. But in terms of drought or unpredictable floods and so on, the best way forward is probably to look at the permaculture approach because... Permaculture really is about making growing systems more resilient, yeah. so creating planting projects which use plants in a in a kind of clever way to try and restore water loss, mulching the ground, covering the ground, avoiding bare soil um, so it's not just having species that will do better, tree and shrub species that can grow in a dry or particularly wet environment it's also about combining them in permaculture styles for resilience
0: so with anyone kind of listening to this who who's going oh I'm really I'm really resonating to use a word (laughs) eh? I'm really resonating with what Anne's talking about but I don't have huge acreage of land for someone who would want to... Maybe they've got a little bit of land. What would be a minimum bit of land to grow? And what would be the five primaries to look at? I mean, it, we're talking, I'm talking small spaces because yeah. unlike America where there's big bits of land, over here most of it's owned by someone else. So how do we overcome that problem?
1: So... I've been lucky where I am because I've been able to design my own wood and I'm also part of a community project, which I think is a great idea, where we've been able to create a sort of mixed forest garden set-up. But I'm also very conscious that, especially if you're in a city or a town, the space might be more limited. I think that you can do an awful lot with allotments, but sometimes they're restricted on perennial trees and shrubs but you could do quite a lot with medicinal shrubs in, in that kind of environment. In a smaller space, and perhaps a more sheltered space, my suggestion would be to go for herbal teas, because these are plants which often grow really well in a, in a small environment, and can be harvested repeatedly, and give a lot of pleasure as well. And the, the range of herbal teas is, vast. (laughs) From plants that do really well, the mints, the aromatic mints, and can provide lots of digestive support like lemon balm, uh, the different kinds of mints themselves, through to plants which are antiseptic, also in the mint family, thymes, rosemary, which is also quite a stimulating herb. These are all plants that could be mixed and matched in teas you don't have to make teas with one plant alone and often taste better as mixtures and there are lots of daisy family plants which will grow readily in an enclosed environment like yarrow. Yarrow provides a sort of supercharged chamomile anti-inflammatory effect so where am I so I'm thinking of mints. I'm thinking of daisy family. I would also add in something from the rose family because most rose family plants have, even roses, have leaves which are packed with astringents, tannins, which give a tea-like taste to teas. So I would include those. So there's lots of scope, and there's plenty more in the book, obviously, of suggestions uh, more of a 3D kind, yeah. growing up to trees and, and shrubs. And I think my message would be that pollarding and coppicing can be used even in small spaces. So it's possible to grow trees and shrubs and get the benefits of young leaves and bark and maybe flowers and fruit without having to kind of commit yourself Yeah to filling up a whole yard with one or two trees.
0: And can you grow the trees in pots?
1: There are oh, some no. trees that are do really well in pots. For example, ginkgo will do okay. uh, well in a pot. And some of the other ones, for example, myrtle and fig too, will, will do well in pots. So long as you've got a reasonable gritty compost that drains well so they don't get too soggy, uh, they'll do fine.
0: Brilliant. And they'll find more in the book. On they'll, they'll find more in the book. Pot pot growing.
1: Yep, container growing. Absolutely, container growing. Yes, yeah. yeah. And ginkgo is quite an interesting one because you can prune ginkgo, and then you can use the leaves for tea. Yeah, an anti-inflammatory tea.
0: So when it, years ago I did, um, I was walking past a birch tree and I just picked up a load of twigs and I took them home and roasted them. <laughs> And then did timings, depending on the flavour. And it it was extraordinary. People still comment. uh, The recipe is on eatweeds.co.uk. But is there a tradition... I'm thinking immediately with that, you know, immediately to Japan, where they like quite a number of twig teas, from a purely um, recreational, I suppose, is there are there many trees that you know that we can be cutting small amounts of twigs and brewing them up as a as a as an epicurean experience?
1: <laughs> I think I think it, you need to start getting to know your trees by experiment a bit. There are some trees which are so full of tannins, like oak, which are probably not so good for internal use, but certainly birch is a wonderful example and and you can mix for example what about birch with a few leaves of bramble growing around about those bramble leaves will give you the tea like taste and birch will give you a slightly more aromatic maybe bitterness type of taste so I would go for combinations and it's one of the things that I talk about actually I think I've done some blogs and I've also got a course on harvesting as well okay which I, I talk about Combining your teas for particular purposes, uh, whether digestive, the, bit- the bitterness, or for relaxation, then you look for more aromatics. And so, so I'm just thinking about what other trees, looking around to yeah. see what we've got around us. Not spindle, <laughs> <laughs> probably not spindle. This is where you have to start to get to know your trees. And yes, there's a birch over there. Yeah. So I, certainly, you could be using ash.
0: I did just call out spindle. Now, p- spindle is actually toxic mm. if you eat the eat it. So um, we need to be very, well. I need to be very clear to the listeners that, as with plants, you don't just go around nibbling all and everything. <laughs> you've got to know that when you gather some twigs off a particular tree or shrub, you've got to know what that tree or shrub is, and make certain that it's not going to harm you so this is not willy-nilly just gathering twigs off the ground and seeing what it tastes like when we boil them up Uh, it's not that just to be very clear be 100 percent certain on your id before you start experimenting
1: yes plant identification is key yeah getting familiar but it's surprising that the more you do and if you can find a a sort of plant buddy to go with and yeah. the, the, the more you get to know these plants and then you get to know their families and i think
0: taking the kids out isn't it it's really yes it, it's you know it's it's stealing the children off the streets and getting them off their screens yeah and sending them on a plant detective absolutely go yeah. and find this tree yeah. <laughs> i'll tell on. you i was out with my grandkids one year and the wind was blowing through the through the trees and i I came up with this practice, because I'm quite into mindful practices, of is it possible to discern what that tree is by the sound of the wind in the leaves? And I do know that it is, but it's very, very hard. But it's quite a fun thing to do. So it's, yeah. Yes. And get the kids up the trees. (laughs) My granddaughter was up a tree. My cousin came down with her her um, 8 year old and they were appalled that my grandchildren were climbing trees they thought it was far too dangerous
1: well it's something that's done in other countries I don't see why we shouldn't do it here I think
0: it's really important yeah, yeah I do I've not see, teaching the safety side
1: I devised a quiz a while back which involved bark and trying to match the barks to their activities and people were encouraged not just to taste but to smell those barks so they were dried barks and it was fascinating that children really loved to get involved with that and to work out which of these barks was going to make, make, make them poo more because it's a laxative, yeah. and, and which of them were antisposmodic and so on. And that sort of activity is brilliant for bringing children closer to understanding what's possible.
0: Very much. I, th- I mean, they're the guardians of the future, aren't they, sir? The more we can encourage that, mm. the better. Where do you see your work going now? I mean, you've got the courses that hopefully is going to be educating some people who've got an interest. I mean, what's the website? The Medicinal
1: Medicinal Forest Garden Trust dot org. Okay. So it's all one word, Medicinal Forest Garden Trust dot org. I'm hoping to continue building the website and people can sign up for an occasional newsletter on it and to encourage perhaps now that lockdown is behind us maybe we'll be able to do more out in the field and I want to encourage people to try out more with information so that they stay safe to grow more because that's a really good way to get to know your medicinal plants and generally broaden awareness in a way that benefits everybody so they can both do a certain amount of self-help for common complaints, but also understand better the limitations of herbal medicine. And I suspect some people will be so interested they maybe go on and train as herbal practitioners. Other people will just maintain interest and benefit from walking in woodlands and knowing more about the, the, the plants around them. I think we have to go forward this way. I think interest is building all of the time. And looking online, you can see... The number of sites that are to do with tree planting, forest growing, etc. etc. So we have to move on with this. And I hope that, that there'll be more expertise out there, published and, and available, so that every local community garden will have some medicinal plants, perhaps label them up. So that people can see and, and learn from them when they visit
0: yeah I think it's i think it, it's. I don't know why the the tree things coming in but my 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 research certainly is has been my uh, my site has been called caught by trees I won't say called by trees but some people might see it as that <laughs> but certainly caught and I'm not too sure why that is, which is why it was curious to to kind of bump into you at the same time. Um, and I think particularly with the, the summer we've had, for me, anyone who has, you know, been out in the burning heat and then sought sanctuary underneath a tree, suddenly you realise pretty quickly how important these, and I'm going to say the word, beings are, mm. and... We need to be realising that, yeah, you know, they are the, you know, they're the they're the ancestors, aren't they? They're the ancient ones, been around a long time, and our relationship with them for food and sustenance and medicines and shelter and everything is quite extraordinary.
1: We're certainly very lucky. Yeah. We must appreciate them more.
0: Very much. So, thank you, Anne. You're welcome. Good to have you on, and I'm going to hopefully. Convince you to come on another show at some point, maybe to be specific on something. I'd love to. We can talk more. Yeah. Great. Thank you.
1: Thank you.